Welcome to Mind Love, episode 309. Today's episode is all about liberating yourself from emotional walls using Buddhist psychology with Sharon Salzberg. It's also interesting, and this is something we rarely do, is when there's a strong craving or desire, we tend to fixate on and be fascinated by the object, the story, the thing, the person, whatever it is. We rarely kind of pivot our attention around as though to ask ourselves, what does it feel like to want something so badly? And we start with the body. Like, what does it feel like in my body to have this kind of yearning, this wanting? And then it's like we break it down to its component parts. It's like, what's the movie that's going on? And people discover very interesting things. Like people say things like, I didn't realize how much loneliness there was in the desire. I thought it was really about that thing or or that person or that experience, but look at what was in the heart of it or... I didn't realize there was so much sadness in that anger. And we learned so much from being able to look at the, the feeling itself. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means mind love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. When was the last time that you really allowed yourself to feel? And I'm not talking about those top layer feelings that come and go but those deep, messy ones that we usually dodge in our turbocharged, on-the-go lives. For the longest time, I was the queen of dodging those feelings. Anything that threatened to poke at my soft spots? Well, I'd sidestep it faster than you can say, numb it out. (laughs) And here's the kicker. The more I ran from those feelings, the more alone I felt. Ever feel like you're all by yourself in a room full of people? Yeah, that was me, all day, every day. Like I'd created my own personal island, and not the tropical kind. So don't feel bad if you're nodding along, because this isn't really a unique problem. So many of us have been there, feeling like a stranger in our own life, disconnected from something deeper, from any meaning. But what if I told you that this disconnect isn't a bad thing, but maybe a stepping stone to something better? Let me introduce you to Buddhist psychology. It takes a hard look at this feeling of disconnection and it chalks it up to our mad scramble for the good stuff, running away from the bad stuff, and numbing out all of those in-betweens. Sound familiar? Well, what if we could flip the script? I still remember when it all clicked for me. I was on about day 48 of a meditation challenge, (laughs) and I was sitting smack dab in the middle of nature, and suddenly I just started unpacking years of emotional baggage bit by bit, breath by breath, I had this realization of what it really means to embrace my feelings, even the ones I'd been avoiding like a bad date. If you've ever had a revelation like this before, you know what I'm talking about. But nothing can change around you except for your perspective of absolutely everything. Suddenly, instead of seeing my somewhere between 10 to 28 years of numbing and disconnection as a mistake or a regret, I had this understanding I realized I was pushing away parts of myself and missing out on the whole human experience. Buddhist psychology teaches us, in the seeing, there's only the seen. In the hearing, there's only the heard. What does that mean? Well, it's about directly experiencing life, without judgment, without resistance, without your mind running a marathon in the background. And that's a little of what we're talking about today. So our guest today is Sharon Salzberg. She's a meditation pioneer, a world-renowned teacher, and a New York Times bestselling author. I first heard of Sharon Salzberg in the Headspace app, where she has a whole featured section in there, or at least she did when I began meditating. Well, she's one of the first people to bring mindfulness and loving-kindness meditation to mainstream American culture over 45 years ago, inspiring generations of meditation teachers and wellness influencers. She's also the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society and the author of 12 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness. Her newest book is called Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. 
I'd also like to give a little disclaimer that I'm pretty sick in the recording of this episode, so I apologize for my super extra raspy voice, but the show must go on. I have always been someone who's prioritized wellness. Well, at least what I understood about it at the time, which has definitely evolved. But now I live in a town where some of my conveniences just aren't as accessible as when I lived in L.A., then I found Aloe Moves and my whole experience changed. I've been an avid yogi for 16 years, but frankly, I am just underwhelmed by most online yoga. Their flows are either too easy or not varied enough. Well, Aloe Moves has everything. Of course, they have an endless selection of beginner content since that is the category most people fall into, but they even have advanced and yoga teacher focused content. They are the only online platform that I can find that I can narrow down the time that I'm looking for precisely. Like, I have 38 minutes today. What you got? <laughs> they have something for every mood. Trying to get a good sweat? Try their award-winning workouts like sweat-inducing yoga flows, hit classes, or reformer Pilates workouts with or without weights. Or find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and even journaling for those quiet moments. And when it comes to sleep, it's just as important as fitness and nutrition. Ever since I watched The Art of Sleep on Aloe Moves, I've been falling asleep faster and staying asleep longer. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to alomoves.com now and use code MINDLOVE for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. And now let's welcome Sharon Salzberg to the show. Thank you so much. I have been a fan of yours for a long time. Since I started meditating like 10 years ago, you were one of the featured uh, teachers in the Headspace app. <laughs> and when I first started this podcast back in 2017, I put you on my list of must-haves on the show. So I'm so grateful that it's finally happening. Oh, I'm delighted. So what inspired your latest book, Real Life? <laughs> It's a very interesting question. Well, I, like many people, was living in uh, lockdown in the beginning of the whole pandemic era and um, throughout it, actually. I came up to Barry, Massachusetts, where I have a house and a retreat center. And in the course of um, those early days, I actually watched a show on YouTube called Saturday Night Seder. You know, Seder, of course, is a Jewish ritual of Passover. I'd grown up in that tradition, and uh, more than it being tied to a religion, it was a time for family to get together, for a sense of community. In the best possible interpretation of the, the meaning of the Seder, uh, which is the journey of the Jews from being slaves in Egypt to, to freedom, it's not about geopolitics, it's not about any location, it's not about any one people, it's about that movement from feeling trapped, uh, feeling defined by the circumstances you find yourself in, into freedom. And I watched that and I thought, you know, that would be an interesting book. So I used that time. It was the first time I've ever written a book. And this is my 12th book. It's the first time I've ever written a book without also traveling and snatching an hour here or there. So I was just here uh, where I still am, Barry Mass, and uh, had the opportunity to practice meditation, to research to really get into the theme. And so there's the book. So you said you grew up with the Jewish tradition, but now mm -hmm. you, uh, you identify more as being a Buddhist. What has that transformation of, of kind of moving from a more, I guess, kind of, I look at it sort of as a, like a strict law-abiding tradition to more <laughs> of one as of openness? You know, the legacy I had was I grew up for a while with my grandparents and so that meant a kind of adherence to uh, orthodoxy or observance within the Jewish tradition that wasn't necessarily common in my time, which was sort of a secular time by and large for a lot of people. And Buddhism is odd in that way. It's more a psychological system than anything. It's not really a belief system. My first meditation teacher was in uh, January 1971 in India, his name is S.N. Goenka, and he said the first night of my first retreat, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. This is open to anybody. It's just methods of awareness and, and waking up and paying attention differently. And anybody can avail themselves 
of it. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist and or reject anything else. And so, in fact, you know, I don't know that I identify as a Buddhist even most of the time. People ask me, I say, I don't think in those terms. I'm just trying to be, you know, a good person or trying to uh, have a happier life. And, and that's been true all along. Um, but the language I tend to use, the stories, the imagery, uh, often come from the Buddhist psychology because it's been a long time since January of 1971. I was raised a Christian and we were very heavily involved in the church. And I feel like most of my adult life has been seeking outside of that, trying to find mm-hmm. what truth was in it, what new truths I can find, mm-hmm. like different ways of interpreting things. Yeah. And I've gone, there was a time that I was going back and forth between what I'd grown up with and and other things. And then I feel like I kind of severed something and, and wouldn't look back at it at all. And now I'm going through a time where I'm actually sort of interested in mm-hmm. the the tradition that I was grown up in, but in viewing it through a different lens. Mm-hmm. And in that process, I've been spending a lot of time kind of praying or meditating mm-hmm. on just being guided. Like what, mm-hmm. what is the truth in this? What is not? What, what can I learn? Where should I go type thing? And, and it's funny because I have been listening to a podcast called The Vedic Worldview by Tom Knowles. And I wrote down this quote and it reminded me of so many things that I've came across in your book. But he said that literalism is the foundation of fundamentalism and fundamentalism is the certain destruction of any body of wisdom. And you had this whole section in your book about Mm -hmm. fundamentalism. And it just, I had this sort of epiphany while I was reading your book about sort of uh, how I grew up was sort of the contracted version of the Mm -hmm. truths. While what I'm viewing now, viewing the stories, just like you talk about like the exodus of Egypt and Mm -hmm. the figurative meanings of that, like the story behind the story, not just people exiting this area, but like, what does that mean on a broader scale? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the expansive view of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, like what I tried to do in the book was also uh, look at, okay, if this is the journey we want to make in our lives from being defined by, you know, the circumstances we find ourselves in, the way other people see us, the stories they tell about us, either to us or about us, the ways we feel overcome, you know, we don't know how to break a habit or, or even temper it in some way. And, uh, you know, we just feel so stuck. And the journey from that place to openness and freedom and part of that stuckness, which is also figures in the subtitle, is a sense of isolation. You know, we just feel so cut off and alone, despite the truth, which is that we live in an interconnected universe. We're not so alone, but we feel that way. You know, so I I started looking at, okay, when do we, many of us, tend to feel the most stuck, the most, our world gets smallest, we feel the most limited, the most trapped. And, you know, from the point of view of the Buddhist psychology, that would be grasping, like when we're clinging, uh, aversion, like hatred or fear, and then delusion, which is just like being confused, being numb, being spaced out. And I tried to think of, okay, what are real kind of interesting and and uh, not so c- common interpretations of each of those states? And for grasping, you know, I really explored like addictive tendencies. And for anger or hatred, I, I discovered something that was really interesting to me, which was sort of the role of shame in Western psychology and how, you know, it's held out sometimes as a really positive thing, like having a conscience or being sensitive, which is very important. But uh, it more is kind of a lacerating self-hatred. And does it actually help us, you know, make a change and be better or whatever? And No, the answer is no. And so that was really interesting to me doing that research. And then for delusion, the kind of confusion um, unsettledness, spaced outedness. Interestingly enough, there's a little twist of that which manifests as fundamentalism, which doesn't come from certainty. It comes from doubt and fear. And, you know, like the examples used of wandering around in the wilderness and seeking shelter anywhere. And you see some like a little hut somewhere and you think, that's it. That's going to protect me. That's going to keep me safe. And you go for it and you will not give it up even if it's like falling down around your ears, you know, that's it. And so that was also really 
powerful and interesting for me to explore. Yeah, I love how you called those the three root hindrances Mm -hmm. because it it really, those states really do cut us off from our core is, is how I view it. And I couldn't help but think I've spent so much of my life between the craving and grasping and the delusion. Mm-hmm. It was one or the other. And a lot of times <laughs> I was numbing through the different addictive yeah, tendencies. Yeah, yeah. And so yes. I know that you said that you spent a lot of time in delusion as well. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? If there's one topic that keeps coming up in my women's circles, it's our hormones. Frankly, I think that between years of birth control or beauty products that mess with endocrine function, a lot of us are just out of whack. Estro Control is a formula developed by Happy Mammoth, a supplement company dedicated to making women's lives easier. It has science-backed herbal extracts that help support hormonal health, especially in women who suffer from PMS. The way Estro Control eases PMS is pretty interesting. The ingredients support the liver, and that's where our hormones get processed, especially estrogen. So when the estrogen isn't processed well in the liver, women may start having PMS, spots on the skin, they get cravings, they feel low all of a sudden. Estro Control was created to help women feel like themselves all throughout the month because PMS can basically rob us of a week of our lives every month. Totally not fair. Estro Control is made specifically for women who are premenopausal, so it's perfect for women that haven't entered menopause yet. And in fact, it's amazing for perimenopause when hormones start to fluctuate and PMS can turn into a beast. I have been relearning myself postpartum. I just started my period again when my baby was 10 months and I forgot how wild these hormone changes can be. I wanted something to just maintain optimal hormone levels and help with mild mood swings. And Estro Control is perfect for this. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com with promo code MINDLOVE at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use promo code MINDLOVE for 15% off your first order. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I know that you said that you spent a lot of time in delusion as well. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? <laughs> Um, well, I should also say that a lot of these tendencies, I think both East and West would agree, uh, are often uh, adaptations. You know, it's things we, we turn to because we don't feel we have a choice or maybe we don't have much of a choice at a time. Like there are certain experiences in life, especially if you're young, where, you know, ceasing to feel is like a very smart choice. You know, and getting cut off from your body or getting cut off from your emotions. Thing is, you don't want that to be your steady state. You don't want that to be your only option pretty well. You don't want that be to be your go-to place when you do have choices. And you're an adult now, and, you know, it's not a question of survival anymore. And 
um, you could be creative. You know, there, there could be lots of opportunity for growth and change here. You know, and so it's not to feel bad about it, you know, or down on yourself for for seeing these tendencies or having strong, you know, kind of urges to to go to those very familiar places, but understanding that um, it's a it's a changing world and that we can we can work with these and it doesn't have to be that way. So delusion, you know, for me, like um, sometimes in the Buddhist psychology, they'll say that you can have a kind of type of typology, like, you know, you can have a personality structure that's largely around craving or largely around aversion or largely around delusion. And, and each of these has a very positive side too, by the way. So the delusion is, is that kind of not feeling thing. You know, it's, uh, you're just kind of going along and you're not, you know, you're not very in tune with a lot of things and that's comforting. It's like taking a little nap, even though you're at work or, or you're at school or, or you're commuting, um, not with eyes closed. And it's, it's being uh, in this world of just, you know, it's cloudy, it's good, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, but the problem with it, you know, which I also talk about in the book is that you're then very dependent on the views of others to define what's true, what's happening, what's right. And, and that dependence in the end is not a very good thing. And so we need to develop a kind of acuity of attention and, and awareness on our own behalf, which involves beginning to recognize what we want and what we feel and, and where our boundaries are, which could be very new for a lot of people. That was a big turning point in my life in general was actually realizing that I rarely turned my attention inward. <laughs> and if you would have asked me at that time, like you wouldn't have been able to use those words and, and have it be the epiphany for me. It -hmm. took me a long time to actually see because I was thinking, well, I'm always in my head. I'm always overthinking things. Of course I'm inward. But I was overthinking what everyone else was thinking. Uh (laughs) Like I was I was making sure that I was fitting into what I thought everyone else wanted, what I thought was everyone else's version of success, what I thought was other people's version of cool or what looked good. Mm -hmm. And I was constantly trying to fit myself into that rather than turning inward and saying like, what makes me uncomfortable? What makes me Mm -hmm. happy? What, who am I? And so actually being able to do that was, it was like an aha moment that I never knew I needed (laughs) that unraveled over about five years of time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my story that I, I often use in teaching, um, about delusion was years ago I was here in Barry Mass where I have a house and retreat center, the Insight Meditation Society, just through the woods a little ways away. And I had gone one night to Cambridge Mass to give a talk and I drove back and just parked the car outside because we didn't have a garage in those days. And the next morning I walked by that very spot and noticed that my car was gone. And I walked over through the forest to the retreat center to teach. And the first person I came upon in the staff dining room was if anybody had taken the car like to put gas in it or something, it would have been him. <clears throat> you know, so I, I just kind of looked at him a little spaced out and I said, have you seen my car? And he said, no. And he said, is it gone? And I said, yeah, it's gone. Huh. And he said, I didn't take your car. And then he looked at me and he said, this is the killer moment. He said, are you sure it's gone? And I thought, Am I sure it's gone? I walked right by that place. I'm sure, it's where I parked. There's nowhere else to park. Surely I would have noticed it. A car's a big thing, but is it gone or is it not gone? And that's the moment, right, where we just give over everything to someone else. And, you know, I spent the morning, like, asking people, have you seen my car? And somebody <laughs> said to me, well, you know, you just lent it to somebody and you forgot who. And then that rest of the morning I was thinking, who did I lend my car to that I can't remember? And then, you know, I came down again after uh, working and then I was back in the staff dining room and I asked somebody and someone else overheard me. and said, oh, I know what happened to your car. There was somebody had an emergency. It was the only car I could think of. So I told him, just take it. And then he said, I didn't think you'd notice. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but that's, you know, it, it's comforting for sure. You know, like being wrapped in a little cloak or something, but it's dangerous to give over our vision of what's true to someone else. Yeah, I think I spent 25 years doing that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And it still is something that I have to bring a lot of awareness to not do accidentally sometimes. Like yeah. especially yeah. when I'm especially when I'm around family. When <laughs> there's something about my mom that kicks me into the childhood self more than anybody else. Uh-huh. <laughs> so she'll be around and I'll be like all of a sudden just worried about what she thinks, worried about how she's what she's gonna ask for next. And I, I can get very in my head about uh, making sure everyone else is okay to the detriment of myself. So we've talked about delusion. Can we go deeper into aversion? What does aversion encompass? Um, aversion uh, is the dual sense of both anger and fear. Uh, because in the Buddhist psychology, they're the same state. They're two different forms of the same state. Anger being the outflowing, expressive, energized form Fear being the frozen, held-in, imploding form of trying to strike out against what's happening, trying to separate from it, trying to declare it to be untrue. And there is a certain, um, especially in the anger form, um, something really useful in that, obviously, the energy, you know, not to be passive, not to be complacent, um, to be willing to draw boundaries. Sometimes there's a kind of truthfulness in, in anger, like, I often say that, you know, if you're in a meeting or something like that, uh, you may be counting on the angry person to kind of pierce social niceties. Like everyone else is studiously avoiding the hole in the carpet and every, and the angry person goes, look at that hole in the carpet, <laughs> you know? And so uh, we count on them in some way. But, you know, again, if you're the person and you're perpetually discontented and all you see in this room pretty well as the hole in the carpet and you can't see the beautiful sconces and you can't see the effort somebody put into the catering and you can't see, you know, uh, it's a pretty dissatisfied life. And so I come back to, um, you know, not calling that state bad or wrong. And I think we always have to honor whatever we're feeling and recognize it for what it is, but you don't necessarily want to be defined by uh, your angriest time, you know, and I kind of carry that around all the time. It, it, in the Buddhist psychology, anger is described as being like a forest fire, which burns up its own support. So in other words, it can damage us. It can destroy us. Uh, and so what we want is that energy. We don't want to lose that ever. And even that clarity, that truth-telling ability, uh, but not maybe the perpetual discontent. So you said uh, a few minutes ago that there's a good side to all of these. Mm-hmm. Would that good side, how you mentioned, we don't want to lose the clarity and the truth telling, mm-hmm. is that considered the good side? Yeah, that is the good side. It's like a, a, a penetrating intelligence or wisdom. So what are the good sides to the other two, delusion and then the craving and grasping? Well, with delusion, which I'm very familiar with, <laughs> the good side is is a kind of evenness or balance or or equanimity like but when you're really deluded that that equanimity comes from not noticing when you learn to pay attention much more carefully and take in much more and sort of know what you're feeling and know what you yourself want you can still have that kind of balance um but with awareness instead of a lack of awareness like i was always told by my friends that i as a deluded type was a delight to travel with because I'd never noticed anything, you know, like uh, <laughs> I you know, traveled with a friend you know, through China and she said to me, um, uh, we, you know, go to the hotel or, or whatever. And she said, do you mind if I take that bed over there? And I said, no, that's fine. And like 20 minutes later, I said, why did you want that bed? You know? And then she'd say, oh, the mosquito net looks better and it's close to the window so I can control the window and it's close to the light so I can control the light. And I know it's nothing, you know, like, but I was fine <laughs> with it all. And with um, a craving or grasping, it, it there's something in there that is like a love of life. It helps us get close to experience. We're not aloof. Uh, we're not standing back. We're not cynical. We want experience. We want to be close to people, to things, to to life itself. But it comes with a kind of stickiness when it's really craving, you know, is never enough and we're always comparing, like, do they have more? Or, and we're always missing uh, often when we're lost in that state. Like, what am I compromising to get this thing, to have this experience? You know, what am I giving up? Where's the balance? Or how am I actually going to be happier? You know, and so we don't want that stickiness and that 
kind of habitual element, but uh, that love of life is a beautiful thing. Yeah, I have had to move through a lot of different addictions in my life and in different ways than other people. Like I never did a 12-step program or anything like that, but I have struggled with bulimia, with drugs, with alcohol, with prescriptions, <laughs> really all uh -huh, the things. Uh -huh. I used to joke that I could get addicted to gummy bears if, if I had <laughs> enough of them. But it's true, and I, I think that um, a part of it is just, or for a really long time, was my – not really inability, but my unwillingness to sit in discomfort. And mm -hmm. so if I was just distracting myself with some other feeling, mm -hmm. taste, something I was seeing, so, like mm -hmm. like a, when Netflix came out, the fact that I could binge a whole series at once was mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. a whole new drug I had to figure out. And so – I found your practice of urge surfing to be really helpful. Can you mm -hmm, teach mm -hmm. us about that? Sure. I mean, I think it's not just, uh, although urge surfing is about being with discomfort, um, there's also a great inability we tend to have just culturally of being with ordinary things. You know, they were kind of boring. You know, we tend to need intensity in order to feel alive, uh, even intense pain, you know, little and intense pleasure. And so the ordinary, the routine, the repetitive, it's not making it for us until we train our attention to actually take in subtlety and be more present even in those times. But it is very hard to be with the discomfort because most of us are conditioned to add something to it so that it's not, you could just say just the pure experience of what's uncomfortable is what's uncomfortable plus sense of isolation. It's only me. I'm the only one who Friday night is feeling this and a sense of blame. I should never have, you know, let this happen or, you know, I've been meditating for all these years. Why is this still here? Is this all my fault or a sense of permanence? This is what I'm going to feel forever. There's nothing else, even though I just felt 50 other things that didn't count, you know. And so the first thing we want to do is kind of look at the add-ons, as we call them, and loosen their grip a little bit. It's not bad that they came and uh, you know, in thoughts or feelings or sensations, however, whatever form it takes. But to understand that if we dive into them and we take them to heart, it's going to be much harder. So it's relinquishing the hold on them. And then it's really, it is like surfing the urge. It's like, okay, here it is. It's, it's like this storm, this weather moving through me. I want this, whatever it is, or them, whatever they are. And let it, let it come through, you know, and uh, there's a certain confidence and even self-respect in that. Like, yeah, I mean, I couldn't handle this when I was 15, but I can actually handle this now. You know, like I can breathe. Uh, I can create enough space around it so it doesn't consume me. Um, I can remember I'm not alone because that is a fundamental truth. We are never as alone as we sometimes feel. You know, we can remember things we've learned and and just bring them up so that we're not we're not feeling so forlorn in the face of this desire, whatever it is. It's also interesting, and this is something we rarely do, because when there's a strong craving or desire, we tend to fixate on and be fascinated by the object, the story, the thing, the person, whatever it is. We rarely kind of pivot our attention around as though to ask ourselves, what does it feel like to want something so badly? And we start with the body. Like, what does it feel like in my body to have this kind of yearning, this wanting? And then it's like we break it down to its component parts. It's like, what's the movie that's going on? And people discover very interesting things like people say things like I didn't realize how much loneliness there was in the desire I think it was really about that I thought it was really about that thing or or that person or that experience but look at look at what was in the heart of it or I didn't realize there was so much sadness in that anger and we learned so much from being able to look at the the feeling itself Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. And get this, the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? Two words, living intentionally. We have to take full responsibility for every area of our lives, including our health, which also includes our air. And that's why I love my air doctor. 
As a reminder, when you support my sponsors, you also support the show. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants, so your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants like allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, spores, and even bacteria and viruses. I live in the mountains, and our air is pretty great. When I drive home, I can witness myself rising above the cloud of pollution that covers the rest of Southern California. But I know that even in the mountains, my home traps in the contaminants that my family brings inside. Plus, just sleeping one night with my air doctor, I could actually feel the difference. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day breathe-easy money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. So head to Air Doctor Pro and use promo code MIND, and depending on the model, you'll get up to $300 off. You're saving up to $300. Lock this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code MIND. That's promo code M-I-N-D. I find it so fascinating how sometimes I just need to hear that there's a different way to look at something uh-huh. <laughs> and my entire energy around it shifts. And I'm reminded of uh, when I was living in LA, one thing I love about LA is just kind of the conscious community. Uh-huh. And I used to be a part of a women's group and we'd go and just have a different topic and we'd talk about it for an hour or two on different nights. And that circle was the first time I had ever heard the phrase... <laughs> like to create space for something. And I remember thinking like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But then I sat down with it and I was just like, what does this mean to me? And it all just unraveled just with this new phrase of of looking at something. And I'm like, create space for it. Suddenly the idea of like these uncomfortable feelings that I was always trying to steer myself away from, Uh just the idea that I could create space for them allowed me to sit there (laughs) comfortably Uh and actually feel that I had created space, feel that this sensation wasn't unbearable, feel that it was something that I could handle, feel that it was just a feeling and not like this Uh actual need to get up and run. And so the idea of of contraction versus expansiveness and like that ability to create space for it, it doesn't need for me, it didn't need to be this lifelong practice. Uh-huh. It it was able to transform just by a new thought. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's not, I mean, we say journey because it's a journey, but it's a journey we can take in a moment, you know, for that moment. <laughs> like, oh, I'm permanently free, you know? It's not something like that, but we can, we can traverse that whole distance from isolation and constriction to openness with a thought, as you say. True. And and the journey for me was creating, was making that spaciousness more or last longer than the moment. Because, yeah, there's this moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, there's this freedom. But then mm-hmm. all of my habits and my tendencies and my neural pathways are still going towards that contraction. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the yeah, practice yeah. of like, okay, no, remember, create space. Yeah, right. Remember, right. sit in this. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's where the more long-term change comes from. Yeah. I mean, I really always urge people, you know, please don't feel discouraged that you have to do this again and again. Like I, early in my practice, I just assumed it was going to be the great breakthrough experience, you know, and after that, it's like smooth sailing forever, you know, and it's not exactly like that, but we're growing and changing all the time and we fall down and we can pick ourselves up or let others help us up and we go forward and we're always kind of beginning again and beginning again. So we have these three root hindrances that we've been talking about, mm-hmm. but what is it that causes us to lean on these three things versus something that is naturally better for ourselves, if that makes sense? Yeah. I mean, I think it's many things that you know could be summed up probably in the word conditioning because um, there's cultural conditioning, there's family conditioning, there's you know cultural conditioning in the sense of you know, we probably hear the message over and over and over again that something like endless accumulation is going to keep us safe. It's going to make us happy. It's going to keep change from happening. So we have these, uh, we're basically conditioned in different ways, whether it's society, whether it's our family. But because they're all different, is there power in figuring out like where each of these things came from 
for us individually? Or is it something where we can just be like, well, I know one of these is holding me back. I can just kind of move from here. Like, is it valuable to delve into our past and kind of unwrap the trauma or whatever it is that Mm -hmm. created each of the tendencies? Or is it better to just sort of realize we have the tendencies and move on from there is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I don't know if it's a a better, worse paradigm so much as I think what's essential is to be able to disentangle in the moment. And if going into the past and having that kind of understanding you find helps you disentangle the moment I could see how it could then you begin to think of things as less personal for example and understand them as forces of conditioning um you don't feel so upset and ashamed and freaked out when you see it you think oh yeah that's that old tape you know that's I mean this is this is uh, kind of a funny example but what just popped into my mind is my uh, friend my colleague Joseph Goldstein who as a young boy loved to sing and probably didn't have the most melodious voice in the world and uh, I forget how old he was. He was very young in some school chorus or something. And the the teacher said to him, uh, you just mouth the words. You know, so he was just like incapable of singing. And he loved to sing. You know, and this went on for decades. And, you know, if he thought about singing, he'd feel embarrassed. He'd feel upset. You know, he felt like hiding or whatever. And, and then somebody... Um, we're out in, in Boulder teaching, and somebody gave him the gift of singing lessons, not for improving his voice, but to have a good time. And that's when he, he sort of picked up singing again. Now he's always belting out some tune or another. And uh, you just see, you know, we take things so to heart, and we believe them so utterly, and we just need a little bit of space here too, a little bit of space to step back and look at some of those thoughts and beliefs and convictions. Say, Is it really true? Am I really ruining someone's day by singing, you know? We don't always do that. We just kind of go along and we're busy and we've got a lot of responsibility and we've got a lot to do and we don't necessarily step back and do that kind of introspection, but we can. And there's so many ways. You know, my way, of course, was meditation. That's how I have practiced all these years, but it doesn't have to be meditation. It's just some activity or lack of activity, you know, being still or journaling or being in therapy or something that will allow you to just take that kind of look like, is it really true that it's a dog-eat-dog world and if I help someone else, it'll weaken me? Is it really true that gratitude makes you stupid and compassion makes you stupid and vengefulness makes you strong? Is that really true? And we don't try to figure it out, but we look at our experience directly. Like, what am I feeling when I'm, you know, thinking about someone else's actions for the 15th hour in a row <laughs> and I'm, I'm all upset about it. Is that really strong? Or what am I feeling when I feel compassion? Is that really weak? Is it? And so we have that opportunity to discover for ourselves. It's funny how many answers I'll get just from, again, giving myself the space to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. It's like we assume that we know the inner workings of our mind and our motivations and our assumptions because we're with ourselves all the time and we're the ones that are in our minds. So of course we know. But so often I don't even realize that my behaviors are driven by just this repetitive pattern that I've been Mm -hmm. clinging to my entire life because I'm triggered by something and then I'm triggered and then I'm in fight or flight and then I'm reacting in this, this habitual way without bringing more awareness or thought to it. And so it's taken a really long time to get to the point of being like, wait, I'm in a cycle again and it's not comfortable. Can I unravel this a little bit? Can I step back Mm -hmm. a little bit? Can I ask a question? What's the first question that comes to mind? What's the first Mm -hmm. thing I feel like needs to be challenged? And just go on a walk even without headphones and allow myself to think a little bit more and think a little bit more consciously instead of just letting my brain run wild. Yeah, exactly. So we've talked about allowing more space around these sort of difficult feelings. Mm -hmm. But there was one process that you talked about that I found really helpful called the handshake process. Can you teach us Mm -hmm. about that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, that was a very direct kind of instruction about those things that came from my Tibetan teacher, Sonny Rinpoche. He describes those states we experience inside, like jealousy, fear, grasping, uh, rage, you know, all these things as our beautiful monsters. Note the word beautiful. And so the question is, how am I going to relate to this? 
habit. You know, we can want to deny it, push it away. We get ashamed. We're upset. We're freaked out about the appearance of this state. And that's not helpful. Or we can get consumed by it and overcome by it and start acting out from that place. And that is usually not that helpful either. So we talk about mindfulness as a place in the middle where you can be completely connected, say, to what you're feeling without either being lost in it and driven by it or hating it and pushing it away. It's that place in the middle that we're cultivating. We actually train, you know, to be more and more in that space. And so what he's describing that space as is handshake. It's like you're sitting at home minding your own business and the doorbell rings and you get up to answer the door and there's one of these visitors. You have many options. You can fling open the door and say, welcome home, it's all yours. It's like forgetting they're only visiting, that you live there, your awareness, your balance, your compassion actually live there. Or you can freak out and like try desperately to shut the door only to find that that visitor comes in the window or down the chimney or something. Uh, that's just not effective. It's not going to work. And so what do we do when we open the door? Can you be present? Can you kind of ground? Can you be centered? Can you recognize what you're experiencing as a visitor? And uh, in a way, be hospitable. Don't let them take over the house, but invite them in. And you're strong enough to do that. You know, you can, you can be a little kind and in the presence of that state even as you don't let them take over. And so that's the whole delicate training that one goes through in cultivating mindfulness so that you can more and more be in that place. And I like the way he expresses it as handshake. Um, in other Tibetan teachings, they sometimes say, invite that force in for a meal. Keep an eye on them. Really, you don't have to be that upset about their presence. If anything, it's a state of some suffering if you get involved in it. And so you can have a little tenderness. So I used that example once in teaching a class and someone in the room didn't like it. And I said, well, how about invite them in for a cup of tea? And they said, well, how about a cup of tea to go? And I said, okay, if that's the extent of your hospitality, that's fine. You know, and I would say my favorite definition of mindfulness came years ago with this article in the New York Times about one of the very, very early pilot programs bringing mindfulness into the classroom. And it was a fourth grade classroom in Oakland. So the kids were like nine or 10 years old. And so the journalist asked one of the kids, what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? And what the kid said was, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's mindfulness. And I thought that is a great definition <laughs> of mindfulness because what does it imply? It implies... You know you're feeling angry when you're starting to feel angry, not after you've sent that email, you know, not after you've lashed out at your kids, but as it's building. And it implies a certain balanced relationship to the anger because if you're consumed by all of these different feelings that come, you're likely to hit a lot of people in the mouth because life can be really frustrating. But at the same time, if you freak out, oh, no, I'm angry, it's terrible, I'm bad, I'm awful, and you get tighter and tighter and tighter, and then you'll explode. And so mindfulness means you're really connected to what's going on. You're very aware of it. There is some space. And in that space, creativity can arise or options can appear. I like to think of that nine or 10-year-old kid thinking, hit someone in the mouth last week. Didn't work out that well. <laughs> Maybe I'll try my words, you know, or something like that. And so it's not that you never do anything about anything, but there's, there's a much greater range of possibility. Yeah, the words that come to my mind are allowance and acceptance. And it mm -hmm. reminds me of the process of learning to meditate, where in the beginning, and I think it's such a misconception with so many people that mm -hmm. don't meditate, is that they're trying to figure out how to sit there and not have any thoughts, which is right. just nearly impossible. Right. And I feel like the same misconception happens with a practice of mindfulness where they're expecting to get this to this place of not feeling anger, not feeling judgment. Mm -hmm. And then when they, when it pops up and all of a sudden they have a judgmental thought about somebody, they're like, 
darn it, I'm never going to be good at this. Yeah, I'm not a very yeah. good person, whatever it is. And it's just like, yeah. no, it's how you engage with those thoughts or those emotions that come up. And can you sit with them? Can you allow it? Can you invite them in, as you say? I have been reading this for some reason when I'm sick, which if listeners can't tell, I'm I'm just getting over something, but I've been sick for the last week and I have a really hard time reading or watching anything that's intelligent <laughs> beyond mm-hmm. a certain level. So I always like read a romantic comedy or something. Uh-huh. I was reading this romantic comedy by one of my favorite romantic comedy authors that I read when I'm sick. <laughs> and uh, the whole process or the whole storyline between this these two people that were falling in love were uh, being harmless to one another because they were both they were both going through some traumatic things. And and I just love that. It was like something I'm like, oh, I'm actually going to take a lesson away from this book that I thought I was just reading for fun. But I like the idea of agreeing to be harmless to yourself mm-hmm. in a different way. And so mm-hmm. if those thoughts of judgment do come up and you shake its hand or the thoughts of grief or or isolation, whatever the hard feeling that you're dealing with, can you shake its hand and just agree to be harmless to one another? Trust that this feeling or this emotion is not going to be harmless to you if you sit with it, just mm-hmm. as you aren't going to be harmless back by judging yourself for feeling it or thinking it. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. So we've talked about learning to sit with emotions better and and some different tools for dealing with it. But another thing that you talk about in your book is is learning how to be better with difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. And that can be so difficult because it's it's not just oh I can I can calm this thing within myself. Maybe there's you're actually living in an experience of chaos or hardship. Mm-hmm. So what's your process for learning to be better at kind of being in the difficult circumstances rather than running from it or or doing one of the the hindrances that we've talked about before? Um, I think there are many steps to to that process, you know, like because um, things can be really hard, and and you know it would be too glib to to try to deny that. But there are also elements that give us a sense of resource. It's like if I think of the stress dynamic, which is a dynamic. There's the pressure or the circumstance or the commentary, whatever is causing the stress that's coming at us, and then there's the resource with which it's met, and we know that just from ordinary life, right? Like if you haven't slept at all last night and then you overhear a comment today at work, uh, it lands really deeply and you're very annoyed and you're freaked out. And whereas if you were perfectly rested, you know, and you heard that very same comment, you would go, oh, that's curious. Maybe I need to find out more, but you wouldn't be so taken apart by it. You know, so we want a sense of resource. We want a sense of wherewithal within and, uh, especially when we feel under pressure or things are hard or we're taking care of somebody else. Caregiving is a kind of classical example of a time when, you know, people just burn out, uh, not because they lack caring. They're very, very caring, but uh, because there's a kind of balance that's not there at the moment. Maybe it's the balance between compassion for themselves as well as compassion for others, or maybe it's the balance between really trying to make a difference and remembering it's not in my hands ultimately. Like I also once said in front of a group of people, I thought if, if I were only in control of this universe, it would be so much better a world. And someone in the room challenged me and they said, are you sure? And I thought about it for a moment and I said, I am really sure, but you know what? It's not to be. And so I think we always want to bring wisdom into any circumstance. Like what, is in my control and what is not in my control or remember that things might take time and I need to do what I can do right now or today or in this meeting or, you know, right now. And it's all like building blocks. We tend to be trained also culturally, I think to be very impatient and that doesn't help because sometimes things really take time. Um, I say to myself in, in a, a bad time, you know, I say, okay, what can I do right now? Just, even if it seems small, nothing is too small. Um, you know, what is the thing I can remember? And the other part of it, which uh, is also not that easy, is remembering to take in the joy because sometimes we feel so bereft and so overcome. It's like I actually would ask myself as is a practice, like, 
what do I have to be grateful for today? You know, three small things. I'm still breathing. That is a good thing. Um, doesn't have to be grandiose or, you know, those are the kinds of things we feel too overcome to pay attention to, or it seems too stupid. Uh, people often say, well, I don't know about like that gratitude practice because, you know, that's like training yourself to accept crumbs, you know, as you're being oppressed or, or something like that. But really it's all about, it's like strength training. You know, uh, if we have some sense of resource, we don't feel completely um, deficient and defective, then we can meet situations better. We can enter that stress dynamic with a greater sense of wherewithal and, and resource. Um, and that's very important. So it's both like uh, realizing what I can't control and, and also looking for the joy and, and allowing myself to take it in. Yeah. When you said the example of it's like allowing yourself to accept crumbs and be grateful for it. The first thing that came to my mind is is just realizing that well, whatever state that I'm in, even if things are hard, if I allow myself mm -hmm. to stay there for long enough, I sometimes don't even realize when I've moved out of it <laughs> because yeah, I'm yeah. so used to being stressed out or unhappy or yearning for more or grasping for something else that when I get more, I'm still reaching outside of that. I'm still grasping for more. And, mm -hmm. and not to say that there's not there's not something beautiful in trying to progress or trying to evolve or trying to make your life as beautiful as possible. But if you never train yourself to find that gratitude in what you do have, then nothing's ever going to feel like enough. Uh-huh. I loved the word choice you used. Uh, you used a phrase in your book called widening, uh, the widening the window of tolerance. Yeah. And I loved looking at it this way because so often we are in these contractive or uh, constrictive states. And if we don't kind of push ourselves beyond that or learn to sit in the discomfort or use all of these tools that we've been talking about to move ourselves to a different state, it's like we've never really get to see ourselves or meet ourselves just beyond that. Yeah. And I've I've found that kind of following my curiosity sometimes of, well, this is how I've been living for this long, or this is what I'm used to. Who I who am I just beyond this state? Mm -hmm. Who mm -hmm. am I just beyond this tendency? And even just asking myself that allows me to sort of widen that window a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But go deeper on this idea of widening the window of tolerance because I just really loved that that perspective. Well, that's a, a formulation that um, Dan Siegel made from the Western psychological point of view some time ago. And it's also, I found it really beautiful as well. And I, I would call it in terms of the meditation practice, sometimes I call it stretching. You know, what you just described, it's sort of like, it's realizing that I can be in a rut. I have a very accustomed way of seeing myself, seeing others. So I'm going to see what it's like when I just stretch, you know, and uh, not move from a true place to a phony place, but move from a true place to maybe another true place that gets very little airtime. Like, what's it like? You know, there are any number of people in most people's lives, people who play some kind of function um, that we hardly notice. We tend to dehumanize or discount, check out person in the supermarket or somebody who, you know, performs a service for us, maybe even quite regularly that we don't, we don't tend to even really see fully. And if you realize that, then it's, it's kind of like a moment of saying, I'm going to pay complete attention to this person. And what do we discover? We may discover many things. You know, I was staying in New York once for a while and in a certain neighborhood and a writer friend of mine was living in the same neighborhood and he showed me an advanced copy of his manuscript one day and he was talking about this very thing. He was writing about this very thing. He was writing about going into the, the corner grocery store very often and pretty well seeing the same person working behind the counter and not really having much of a sense of her being sort of indifferent to her and except a very, very vague sense that Maybe she was a little glum or a little unhappy or something like that, but very vague. And he was so shocked at his own inattention and indifference. He wrote, I realized I might as well 
have been a cash register with arms. She, I might as well. She might as well have been a cash register with arms for all I really saw her. So he determined he was going to go into the store and pay absolute complete attention to her. And he did that. And the first thing he noticed in the store was that she was singing along to something on the radio. She had an exquisitely beautiful voice. So he said to her, wow, you have a really beautiful voice. And she lit up. She gave him this big, beautiful, radiant smile. So I was reading this story and I thought, wow, you know, I know exactly who he's talking about. I'm in the same neighborhood. I go into the same store quite a lot. I know the woman. I, too, don't really pay any attention to her pretty much, except this very vague sense that maybe she's a little unhappy or something. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go into the store and I'm going to say to her, I've heard you have a really beautiful voice. I thought to say I've read you have a really beautiful voice is too weird, but I can say I've heard you have a really beautiful voice. I'm going to watch her normally a little bit scowly kind of face light up and she's going to give me this big smile. So I went to the store determined to do that. And the first thing I noticed was that she was already smiling radiantly. And I thought, okay. And I realized I hadn't taken her in at all. You know, so how many people do we miss? How much of life do we miss? Because we're just not paying attention. Or, you know, when I use that example of gratitude, it's like I'm so conditioned at the end of the day not to think of what I can be grateful for, but what went wrong? What can I complain about? And uh, That's just where my mind goes. And it takes not force or coercion, but intention to say, what else happened today? Anything good? And all of these are like stretches and they make our world so much bigger. I love that. And I'm just having these like different sort of visuals of processes of healing for myself and, and seeing so much of the emotional turmoil or the inner turmoil that I've experienced, just looking at that through the lens of constriction and expansiveness is it's just, we get that tunnel vision. It's, it's our mm -hmm. automatic response, but then we're just inside of ourselves. We feel isolated versus this feeling of expansiveness, mm -hmm. whether you're giving space to your own emotions, but also you had defined love in this way that I, I really loved, <laughs> but you described it as love as an embodied knowing of connection with ourselves, mm -hmm. with another, with life. And that's so true. It's just actually seeing ourselves and our as not just this solo being alone in the world, but of actually seeing our interconnectedness. And, and so for listeners out there, I absolutely love and recommend your book, Real Life. Um, there's so many different authors that you mention in there that have been on this show, like Dr. Judd Brewer, Dr. Scott, Barry Kaufman, mm -hmm. Dan Siegel, all of who have been on Mind Love. And so for listeners, it's a really great read to kind of bring a lot of the topics that we've talked about together. So uh, is there anything else that you would like to share? Uh, otherwise, where's the best place for listeners to find you? Uh, probably my website, which is just SharonSalzberg.com. I think spell check is going to want to send you to the city in Austria instead of my name, which is spelled S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G, not U-R-G. Uh, but that's probably the best place to see my schedule and such things. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 309. Your challenge for this week is twofold. First, I want you to just bring more awareness to your feelings. The way I've been practicing this is that whenever I feel anything, when I can remind myself to stop and just feel it, I do. Usually what we do is we react or we respond or we blame or all of the things that we've been doing our entire lives that if we're honest with ourselves, aren't exactly serving us, right? Well, just adding this brief pause between what you're experiencing and your reaction can allow you the opportunity to go deeper into it. And once we're in there, we have options. <laughs> we can either begin to challenge the narrative that we're telling ourselves. Is this really true? Can I absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, know this to be true? How do I react or what happens when I believe that thought? Who would I be without that thought? You might recognize those questions from Byron Katie's The Work, which are still probably the four, my four favorite questions to dive deeper into my own thinking. But besides just challenging our thoughts that we believe are creating our emotions, we can also just sit with the emotion. 
We can also just get curious about what that emotion feels like. What's my body doing? What do I feel inside? Do I feel energy anywhere? Do I feel blockages anywhere? Sitting with these feelings allows us to be with them as they move through us and pass rather than getting stuck within our bodies. And if you want more research on the science of emotions getting stuck in our bodies, you might want to check out episode 285 with Dr. Bradley Nelson and his research in the book, The Emotion Code. So remind yourself of your challenge this week in whatever way you can. Set an alarm on your phone for every few hours. Have a post-it note on your mirror. This is such a valuable practice to really instill into your daily life. The goal in life is to develop a positive relationship with our bodies and our emotions. Our body is supposed to be a learning device in this incarnation. So what is it telling you? If you love this episode, please consider sharing it. Take a screenshot, tag Mind Love Melissa and Mind Love Podcast, and Sharon Salzberg on Instagram. If you want more than just the podcast to start building your intentional life, consider joining the Mind Love membership at mindlove.com membership. Every month, there's a new masterclass that allows you or guides you, I should say, into creating another area of intention in your life, whether it's your morning routine, your evening routine, goal setting, EFT tapping. Each masterclass is actually worth more than the entire year membership overall. So you get a huge wealth of value within this membership. So that's at mindlove.com membership. You can also find all of my sponsors at mindlove.com sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 